Project IMG Podcast, the voice of IMGs. Guys, I want to welcome you to another edition of the Project IMG Podcast. My name is Asim Ansari, and I am one of the hosts that will be interviewing uh, fellow IMGs uh, during the course of a Project IMG podcast. So I want to welcome all of you to today's show. Today, here with me, I have Claire Jane Marie Stringfellow, MD. Welcome, Dr. Stringfellow. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day of being here today. I want to quickly introduce you. Uh, you graduated from St. George's University in uh, Grenada, West Indies. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Yes. Awesome. And when did you graduate, Claire? Um, I graduated, graduated last April, so 2021. Okay. Well, congratulations. How does Thank it you. feel to be a full-on MD now? I mean, you know, everyone... Everyone's excited. I'm excited. I, I couldn't even believe it. But I think, you know, because of COVID and everything, it's just like the celebrations were a tad deflated. And, you know, I also went through the process of going unmatched. So although I had the degree, I haven't really felt like an MD just quite yet. So I'm still getting there. But well, hopefully this year you match. Today is uh, Friday. So I think we're two days away from yep. uh, finding out if you match. So Good luck to you. I, I'm, I'm sure you're going to do well. We will talk a little bit about uh, the whole unmatched process and uh, how many interviews you had, how you went through that. And uh, Project IMG is a great resource for, uh, for IMGs like yourself, uh, for IMGs like me. And it allows you to have free lectures it allows you to do free certifications for ACLS, BLS, and all the other different sort of medical certifications you can do. It also has um, a Discord study room where you can join the study room just to study with other people. It is a great project. And the great thing about Project IMG is that it's free, absolutely free. And it is- a Yeah, great you got to love that. Yeah, you do. So if for, for everyone listening, uh, if you follow- Project IMG on Instagram. You can follow them on Twitter, or you can follow the website at www.projectimg.org. So Claire, let's talk a little bit about your life experience before you started medical school. Where did you go to university? So I went to the University of Arkansas. Um, I wanted to go farther away from home, like I'm sure most kids do when they first you know, get the excitement of going to college. My parents were like, no way is that happening. So I stayed close to home. Okay. Did you live at home? No, I didn't. So I'm from Fort Smith, but the University of Arkansas is in Fayetteville, about 45 minutes north. Okay. And how was your experience at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville? I loved it. Um, I had a really good time. You know, I, I went for a biochem major um, so like right off the bat, you know, you meet with an advisor and they're like, what do you want to do? And I wanted to be pre-med along with everybody else. I felt like every time I met someone, they're like, you know, what are you studying? I'm pre-med, I'm pre-med. But as you go through your studies, you start to see how that group of people that while pre-med by your senior year were not so much. Um, but no, I had a great experience, but when I went to my pre-med advisors, you know, right off the bat, they're like, 
you know, you need to set yourself apart. You don't need to just do a basic biology degree. A lot of people do that. And so I'm like an overachiever and I'm like, all right, I'll do biochem and I'll double major in Spanish. So um, I actually had the dean sign off on one semester because I was taking 21 hours. Um, so college was fun. Um, you know, I did the sorority thing. Uh, I was like social chair assistant of a 400 girl sorority. So um, I had a great time, even though I, I hardly ever went to the functions because I was always studying for my biochem test. But um, I made it what it was, you know, um, the weather is very versatile in Arkansas. So like, you know, that always made things interesting. But for the most time, for the most part, college was a pretty good experience for me. I'm so glad to hear that. Now, you mentioned how you wanted to do medicine right off the bat. You started off with pre-med when you spoke to your advisors. What motivated you to go into medicine? So my mother has four meningiomas and she was diagnosed with them when she was like six months pregnant with me at the age of 29. Um, and she needed to have, you know, an immediate surgery. There was a lot of swelling. They were sitting on her optic nerve and she was like losing vision in the eye and they wanted to have an immediate operation and no one wanted to operate on her because she was a liability for being pregnant. Um, so she ended up having to wait on the brain surgery and she actually got a call from a neurosurgeon in Charlottesville, Virginia named Dr. John Jane. And he called her up and was like, Hey, I've done this surgery before. I've actually like written the journals on it. I would love to do your operation and, you know, I'll save your life and your child's life. And, you know, he did, he, you know, had the surgery removed them and, um, she gave birth to me like immediately after, um, actually she gave birth to me first and then she went in for brain surgery. Sure. Um, but, uh, anyway, so I grew up going, she'd have follow-ups every year, um, because they are a type of tumor that grows back. And so I go with her to her follow-ups in Virginia. We would drive, you know, it was like 16, 19 hours, I believe from wow. Arkansas to Virginia for these doctor's appointments. And as a young kid, um, you know, Dr. Jane would, you know, pawn me off on like a resident or something to watch me. And even when I was in the room with him and he was like explaining things to my mom, he would turn around and explain them to me and show me pictures of the brain and things like that. So at a very young age, I just was like, I want to be like him. And he was my namesake. Um, he was John Jane. And so I took Jane and then my mom's middle name, Marie. And that's how I started going by Jane Marie. So growing up, that's what I went by. Um, so yeah, he was, he was my inspiration. <laughs> wow. That is, that is such an amazing story to hear. And just the fact that at such a young age, you were exposed to medicine and the fact that it was so personal to you, um, that probably motivated you even more to, to ensure that you went into medicine. And when, when you were in university, uh, how were your grades like that allowed you to go into medicine? Like, what did, did, was there anything special that you did while you were in school? I know you said you were part of a sorority. And you also were studying and I bet you did your MCAT as well. So how did you manage your time? So, I mean, looking back, um, you know, maybe I would have done things differently. Maybe not because I love the person that I've become to be. But, you know, when you first start um, in like the pre-med track, um, you know, they're like, they want you to volunteer, be involved in all these extracurriculars and still make the grades. Right. So I was under the impression that the more I had stacked on my CV, the more likely I was to get into a medical school. So, you know, I did the double major. I was volunteering at a free healthcare clinic. I was, 
you know, doing the social chair assistant in my sorority. I was also like working with um, a Hispanic a child tutoring him. Um, so like all these different things, um, you know, that I thought mattered. And then it all, what I realized, you know, when it came down to applying to medical school, it was just all about the MCAT. It was just all about the grades. And it, and it what didn't matter that I was volunteering in my community that I was doing research. I was working in a biomedical engineering um, lab synthesizing gold nano cages. And it just, yeah, really cool, actually. Um, so I was doing all these things that I thought would get me into school. And when it came down to it, you know, it really just was about the numbers and a lot of who you knew. And I, you know, and so, um, like I said, I love the person that I, came to be, but it it was a struggle. So my grades, I had like a 3.4 GPA, um, you know, and biochem, I mean, I was impressed with myself, you know, biochem goes all the way up to like PCHEM and like how to and things like that. So it was difficult courses. Um, but had I known that GPA was such a strong factor, like maybe I would have done a different degree. Like I even knew, um, not saying that like, you know, just dismissing anybody's degree, but I knew I knew people who had gone into medical school on a philosophy degree or on an English degree, you know, because they still managed to do well in their MCAT. I don't think I would have been that type of person if I wouldn't have taken the basic sciences and right. been in a science degree. I don't think I would have done, you know, how I did on the MCAT. Um, but even then, um, you know, I didn't have anybody that had pursued an MD group, um, MD degree in my family before. So, you know, I had friends that were taking like MCAT courses and things like that. And I was self-studying and, you know, so I really didn't have like anybody to like walk me through the process. I was constantly on student doctor network, which was like way bigger, you know, 10 years ago than I think it is like right now. But I mean, that was like my, my guiding source. So I even feel like in the last 10 years of me and my entire medical process, I really not had at least one strong mentor or source to be like, Hey, this is what you need to do. This is the next step. So just the whole process in itself is very overwhelming and, you know, for anyone. And I think if I had a little bit more guidance, you know, maybe my trajectory to medical school would have been differently. And who knows, maybe I wouldn't have become an IMG, but, you know. You raise a great point about the lack of mentorship, especially um, as an IMG. I'm, uh, I'm assuming that you applied to American medical schools as well. Mm-hmm. And you I were... didn't. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I didn't apply to too many, um, you know, because it was expensive and things like that. And, you know, also at Arkansas, like they guarantee you an interview um, just if you're an in-state applicant. So, I mean, I really okay. felt like I was a strong candidate. So maybe part of me was like slightly delusional, but, um, and I did have, so at the University of Arkansas, like you have the pre-med advisors and every time I went to them, they just flat out tell me like, you're not going to cut it for medical school. You're not going to get in. Like I just was constantly told to reevaluate my plan. Did they tell you why you weren't going to get in? Uh, my GPA. And then okay. um, I took my MCAT and I had only scored a 24. Okay. Now, yeah. when you were speaking to your advisors, did they mention anything about all the extracurriculars that you've done? You've done so many none. extracurriculars. So, it didn't so none of them, them, none of them mattered. And even then, um, I actually had a roommate whose boyfriend was also applying to medical school at the time. He did no extracurriculars. He wasn't involved in any school clubs. Um, I mean, nothing. And he had a 4.0 GPA and he scored high on his MCAT and he got several interviews to medical schools and actually ended up going into 
I believe like an Ivy League or like a very prestigious medical school. And I remember thinking like, you know, and this guy was really cool, you know, but I just was like, wow, if I had no, like if I would have spent, you know, my entire focus just on my grades, then maybe this would have been different. But I, I thought the volunteering mattered, the, you know, the community outreach, the, you know, everything else. And, and, and the thing is, is it does. So anybody listening to this, I don't, you know, I want you to take this with a grain of salt because like it does matter in who you become as a practicing physician later in life. I think it absolutely has everything to do with who I am and who I've become as a physician. Um, but getting into medical school, getting into the States, what I say, those things mattered. Unfortunately, no, it didn't for me. Okay. So you applied to medical schools in the United States where you're mm-hmm. from and you weren't able to get in. And mm-hmm. did you spend a year applying and not getting in, or did you apply to international schools at the same time in the same cycle? So I actually applied three years in a row. Okay. And the first time I didn't get in, um, I like took an extra couple. I just graduated and I decided to stay in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I was bartending and I was going to like save up for the application cycle again. Um, and, um, I just worked. And then, you know, I was sitting in the middle of the summer and I was thinking like, I need to do something different. And so actually kind of last minute, I applied to a master's program. And the only one that was like open at the time was in Shreveport, Louisiana, because I waited all summer. Um, just because the devastation of not getting into medical school was just, I mean, it was so hard. It's um, right. So I yeah. kind of sat on it a little longer than I should have. So I missed a lot of opportunities for master's immediately after. Um, so I kind of did like a victory lap at my university, took some extra courses, did things, worked. Um, and then I went down to Shreveport, Louisiana, and I got my master's and I reapplied. And it was during that time that I was working in a free healthcare clinic. Um, well, first, actually, so I reapplied while I was in Shreveport, didn't get in again. And then I reapplied. I'm still living in Shreveport and staying there during this time. Now I've finished my master's and kind of doing, I guess, what you want to call like a victory lap in Shreveport. I'm just hanging out there. I was working at a hospital there as a scribe, started volunteering in the free healthcare clinic and just kind of revamping my app. But now that my master's was finished, I could work on other parts of my application. Um, and I was working in a free healthcare clinic when I met, um, he's now like one of my best friends. Um, but I met uh, one of my, my guy friends there and he was explaining his process to me and how he was also waitlisted at his state school. Um, and he was like, just why don't you apply to the Caribbean? I'm applying. And he's like, we could be roommates. And so I actually ended up applying that January. Um, and I had gotten interviews at a DO school and then uh, UAMS in Little Rock. And when those didn't work out, I just went on and was like, okay, I'm going to start at SGU. And I started that following August. How was the process of uh, the admission process for SGU? Was it pretty simple? Um, I don't remember it being like, I mean, I guess it was, you know, like five years ago, but I, I mean, I remember there being like the personal, uh, personal statement, things like that. The interview was very chill. It was online. Like you had the opportunity, you could fly out to different locations in the United States, but I was located centrally in Louisiana at the time. So that just wasn't, um, that wasn't good for me. Um, so I did my interview, um, online and it was with the person who interviewed me was a recent graduate at SGU. Um, she was great outgoing. Um, really made me feel like ease. So like 
And I had already interviewed at my state school like three times before that. So I didn't really have a lot to compare it to. Um, but I did feel, you know, really comfortable in the interview. It was more easygoing. So to me, I felt like the process was, um, I guess less stressful. So let, let me ask you, I know this is a long time ago, but do you remember any of the interview questions? Um, or even what they talked about during the interview? I mean, I just like remember, I, one of the questions I want to say is like, what do I do when I'm overwhelmed? Okay. Um, and that was actually a common question I got asked in my residency interviews as well. Okay. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of it was just talking. Um, and it just being very natural conversation. Right. So I think if for all the listeners who are, who are listening in right now, it's important to emphasize that you have to be yourself when you're going through the interview, because if you're anything else, it, it's, it doesn't come off very natural, right? Especially during a conversational interview. Well, I, I do, I do want to point out, I, you know, I've always had a problem in interviews. Like I'm someone who grew up doing dance recitals. I was a Buffalo mascot, um, you know, in ninth grade, like I'm a very outgoing person, but for some reason when I was doing interviews, um, whether they were in person 10 years ago when I was applying to medical school or if they were virtual right now for residency, I would just absolutely freeze up, stutter. My face turns bright red. I mean, it was just, I had major imposter syndrome you know, I wanted this more than anything. I put immense pressure on myself, which a lot of people do. And I just would shut down. So I was a very poor interviewer. Um, so like I'm saying that it was like conversation natural, but like, I remember being extremely nervous and, you know, it's still being difficult, but in comparison to the other med school interviews I have, it not being as like intense. So if you have to give any advice to the the listeners for interview skills, what are the top three things you think they should focus on? Top three things. So I would focus on, I would focus on really getting ideas together. Um, You know, there's a lot of common interview questions. You can go online and you can find literally thousands of them. And just having some inkling of an idea of what you're going to say, it doesn't have to be completely rehearsed. Um, you don't want to sound completely rehearsed, but just mm-hmm. having an idea. Um, and I think that's something I did differently this year is actually preparing for my interviews. Like, of course, I always researched who was interviewing me, researched the program. That's something that's, that's the basics. Everybody should be doing that. But I wasn't really practicing questions. And so what I would do is I would absolutely practice questions. You have to practice because some things you don't even think about. And I would practice questions with somebody else and with multiple people. Because like, for instance, like somebody might ask you like, like one of the questions that people get a lot that's kind of difficult is like, talk about a time where you've had like an issue with someone you've worked with. Like, you know, you're in a professional situation, you're not getting along with someone. That's like a very common question. You know, that's a question that you could probably, you know, easily like rehearse or you could just like get awkward and be like, well, I've never had problems with someone because that's not something you just like want to forward, come forward and talk about. Right. So that is a question you're going to want to prepare. And by thinking about it, you can actually say and say what you mean, but now you've thought about it. So it's not just like word vomit, you know, like your thoughts are a little bit more organized. So I definitely would practice questions. Um, The other thing that I would do is practice questions and record yourself. 
Um, so give somebody, you know, a sheet of questions and be like, ask me, like, don't tell me which ones you're going to ask me, like pick them at random and listen to yourself because, you know, I caught myself saying like a lot, stuttering, um, you know, I could catch when I would like trail off and start talking in circles. So things like that, like you need to be aware of what you're doing, especially if you can film yourself like on a zoom, Mm -hmm. um, then you see like how your body language is and things like that, which is important in virtual interviews. And then lastly, like, I think the biggest thing is confidence going into the interviews. And that is so incredibly hard for me, for a lot of people to, you know, like really feel like your ish is together when you know, it's literally all in the line. (laughs) So, you know, it's, I would definitely try to take, you know, like five minutes before the interview and just give yourself affirmations. And it might seem silly, but you've got to pump yourself up. You've got to get excited. You've got to like get ramped up, get ready to go, go get this job, you know, because the minute you doubt yourself, like your voice will crack, you'll lose your train of thought. You'll get, you know, your answers will just echo in your head throughout your interview. And you're constantly just thinking about what you just said instead of, or what you might should be saying instead of just being in the moment with your interviewer. So like really take the time to like pump yourself up, like take the time to get ready do your hair, do your makeup, like wear the outfit that you feel good in because the confidence like is screamed through the camera and in an interview. And like, that's really important. Like you want to connect to your interviewer, you want them to feel comfortable with you, but you also want them to feel engaged. And, you know, by being confident and engaged, like it just, it makes for a much smoother interview. So take the time to like get excited and pump yourself up. So if we were to summarize your, your top three tips, it would be a know the questions that you're going to get mm-hmm. asked, practice them. The second one would be practice speaking. Right. Being in the moment. And the third one would be be confident. Yep. Right. And um, one of the ways that I like to up myself right before anything that I'm, that I'm going to do is um, I like to lift my hands up in the air like this and okay. just go, I'm going to do great. And I do this in the mirror over and over again uh, for five or six times. And I find that it just helps pump you up. And for everyone listening, I think it's important for you guys to notice these uh, three tips because um, not only will this come in handy for medical school interviews, but it'll also come in handy for residency interviews. And it'll also Mm -hmm. come in handy for fellowship interviews. And it'll also come in handy for job interviews. So you've finished um, college, right? You've done Mm -hmm. the MCAT. You got a 24 in the MCAT. Your advisor is telling you you're not going into medical school in the United States. You've tried three years in a row. You've gotten a master's in science from Shreveport, Louisiana, Louisiana State University. And mm-hmm. now you've got an admission to Grenada at St. Yes. George's University, which is amazing. You're probably pumped. You're happy that you're going to be a doctor. You're excited. Now you get on the island. So I really want the listeners to understand the process of, if you can briefly explain the process of how a Caribbean school works in terms of uh, the semesters and a quick brief synopsis of the way you guys study and how everything is structured. And then we can talk a little bit about the life experience of living on an island. Okay. So how, so I went to St. George's University, which was uh, previously mentioned, but so they structure it where you do, you can, you have to do, you can do your first year in Grenada on the island, or you can do it in England. Um, but you have to do your second year on the island. So you 
are either on the island for two years or you're in England for a year and then you're on the island for a year. So you do that for two years and then the last two years are your clinicals and you do those in the United States or again, you can do them. Um, a lot of students are international and come from all over the world. So some students do go back. Um, they can get approved to do clinical rotations in their countries and other things like that. Um, so it's broken up into semesters. So you get on the island and you're there for four four terms, essentially. And um, How long is each semester? About, let's see, like August to de- December. So like four four months, four and a half so there's months. Three months. Semesters yeah. in a, there's three semesters in a year? There's two semesters in your in the year, but you're but when you finish second year um, and you go into like your third year, once you start third year, you only get Christmas break. And then you like you get like a little bit off in the summer, but then you kind of go through the summer. And then you have like your like your your step studying also. So like you you get one summer, like your first year of med school, um, and then you you don't get any after that. So it's straight one after another, you have to continue mm-hmm. going. All right. Mm-hmm. So, and then during your stay in Grenada, uh, you were essentially studying for step one, USMLE step one. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how was that preparation? So, uh, SGU actually has the reputation of being called a USMLE boot camp. So, on day one, I mean, our dean, he's like, you know, look around, every third student is not going to be here. Um, you know, and he pulled up like the statistics from the previous match. And he's like, these, this is how many IMGs match. This is what they scored. If you don't score this, like you're not matching These are different specialties. And he really just like places the fear in you right then. Right. Um, and so every test you feel like, is this it? Is this going to be the end of my career? Is this going to be the end of my career? You know? Um, yeah. So even the school I went to, I went to the Medical University of the Americas in St. Kitts and Nevis, and our pass rate was 70%. So if you got anything less than that at the end of the year, yeah, you would, you'd fail the course. And if you had two fails, you'd get kicked out of the school. And I, it's funny that your dean did the whole look and see who the third person is because he won't be there at the end of the, uh, at the end of second year. And our dean did the, exactly the same thing. So there was, there was a lot of fear um, input into you right away that, hey, you have mm-hmm. to succeed. And I feel like that fear never ends. It never ends. Like you always just feel like on the edge of your seat and like this opportunity can be taken from you at any minute. But it also really keeps the fire alive. Like it's the reality of it, right? Like I know SGU, like we have about 900 per term. Wow. And when I left the island, so they have us take a, um, a practice B uh, BCS, BCSE. It's been a, it's been a minute. The, the they're, they're written by the, yeah, they're MBA. written by the MBA. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. BCSE is what I want to say it's called, but so, we had, we had to score, I think it was like a 75 on it to even right. be able to leave the Island and go study for step. Like so, they held you back and you had to wait another term and right. step study and things like that. So one of the common practices for all of the listeners is in in Caribbean medical schools, when you're done your basic sciences on the island, like Farah just mentioned, you have to take an exam from the NBME, the National Board of Medical Education from the United States. It's a four-hour exam. It consists of four blocks. And um, each school has their own cutoff uh, for each class, depending on how the class did. 
And like Clara mentioned, you had to get a 75 or above in order to start your rotations. Is that correct, Claire, for you as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we had to do the same thing at, uh, at MUA, Medical University of the Americas. So obviously you passed, you went through and you finished medical school. Let's talk a little bit about life on the island. How is that? I mean, when you're in it, you're like, this is the hardest, loneliest thing I've ever done. But when I look back in hindsight, I'm like, I had such a good time. I loved it. I met so many amazing people. Um, I'm someone who loves the beach. I love the tropical environment. So, I mean, I was like in heaven. I love to do out things, things outdoors. So I think it's really about like deciding if you're going to immerse yourself in the culture and the people, which absolutely anybody should do. If you're going to, you know, if you're going to go to somebody's land and, you know, go to school there in that country, like you need to respect the people, try to immerse yourself in the environment and the culture. But there were some, you know, students who would shut down, you know, we're thousands of miles away from home. A lot of us don't have support systems, significant others, our friends, you know, and like, I didn't have a phone plan. So I could only talk to people when I was on Wi-Fi, you know, so you feel very isolated. Um, And I think that's like one of the biggest things of dealing with a foreign graduate school, if you're not from that country. But yeah, so when you get there, you really, you know, try to make friends and, and try to get to know the locals and, you know, you know, go to the events that are going on locally and like things like that. And of course we always had like the hot spots that everybody in our class went to, but you know, I, I like to go venture off and go to, you know, the random bars and the different places of the Island and things like that. So I really took the time to enjoy the experience, although I was struggling, like, you know, mentally and going through the process of medical school, like I did try to find time to enjoy the Island because it, it really is a beautiful place. And if you're going to be in medical school, I mean, you might as well go to the beach when you finish a test. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, that's one of the beauties about being on a tropical island. The beach is always a kilometer away, right? Because you're, right. surra- you're, you're surrounded by water. And you, you mentioned how you immersed yourself in the culture. And that obviously helped your mental health. And you mentioned how it was really isolating at first. Um, and I'm guessing it's very important to make friends when you're on the island because they're going to be your friends for two years. They're going to be your support system. They're going to be the people that you go to when you have a bad test or you have a bad day or your car breaks down, or for some reason, you know, there's some food shortage or, or whatever happens when you're on a Caribbean Island as a foreign, as a foreigner, right? Because you, mm-hmm. you're not a local, any tips for people who are going to a Caribbean medical school in the future on, on how they can make their life easier when they're on an island. So one thing I want to say to any IMG student is your classmates are not your competition. And I think, unfortunately, um, the Caribbean schools really pin you against your classmate. So you're constantly comparing yourself to other people. You are constantly, you know, just, wondering if that person's going to take your spot to residency, especially because they make it sound like, you know, only so many leave and they, you know, would curve tests. So it, it kind of makes it feel like you don't want to help out, you know, your colleague. And that's not true at all. Like, it's going to be okay. Like everyone, you know, if everyone makes a 90, then the curve is set at 90. Like we're all passing. Like it really is going to benefit you more to reach out to your colleagues, to really lean on them and don't let that toxic mentality of medical school where you feel like everybody's your competition. They aren't. 
These are the only people that understand what you're going through. Right. You know, you can call your family back home. You can even talk to your SO if they're not in medicine. Like people really don't get it. And it can be lonely and isolating. Like you need these people and honestly bouncing ideas off of people for tests and, or people helping you remember tests and remember things or to make that project for small group. Like, you know, it's just, it's really important to, you know, make those friends, establish those colleagues and like help each other through. And I think that's really what gets you through the whole IMG process. Absolutely. Great words there. Um, Claire, really, really appreciate all the advice that you're giving to uh, the fellow IMGs. And how is, how is the safety? How is the food? How is the groceries? Like the daily rituals besides medicine? How is life on the island in terms of that? So if you're from the United States, you're probably going to say inconvenient. Um, I w- we are very spoiled and privileged um, in the United States and even in a lot of other countries. You know, my, my classmates, like I said, from SGU were like all over the world. But when you're in medical school, it's, it's the most difficult thing you've ever done, you know, and you want some of those conveniences of, of like going and dropping your laundry off at a laundromat. If you've had weeks of testing and you haven't had time to do laundry, you can just go drop it off at a laundromat. Or if you're in a cubicle all day, hey, I'm just going to door dash some food so I don't have to leave the cubicle. Like those things were not optional in Grenada. And I think that's what people need to understand when you go to a foreign country is you aren't going to have, you know, some of the conveniences that you did maybe back home in your own country, you know? So when you, when you, you had the meal prep, right? Because if it's midnight and you're hungry, like you're not eating, there's like, there's vending machines on campus for sure, but like, you're not going to have a meal for the, you know, I will say um, our campus did have some like late night restaurants, things like that. So um, we had like what you call container park, which was right down the street um, from SGU. And so they had like late night food and things like that. So there there are food options, um, but past like 1am, you know, not so much. No. So if you're pulling an all nighter or anything like that, like you got to plan ahead of time, Um, you know, and it's just like rearranging your routine. If you're someone who likes to go grocery shopping at night, like that may not be something that you can do on the Island. A lot of the grocery stores, you know, they close at like five or 6pm. So I know SGU like alternated lectures uh, based on like what semester you were. So like first semester had their lectures from eight to 12 terms two had their semesters from like 12 to four or whatever. And then we had like small group after. So like, you know, you had to like really figure out like when are you going to have small group when you can have lecture because you would get out of class and be like, Oh no, like I forgot to go grocery shopping and the grocery store is already closed. And then your day starts all over again the next day and you're trying to figure out when you can go grocery shopping the next day. So you can't just pop into Publix or Walmart at midnight and get your groceries or even at 5 a.m. before class starts, which you could do, you know, in some other places. So it, it was things like that. And then also um, transportation. So if you were someone who is used to driving your own vehicle back home on the island, the cars, I mean, any of the vehicles, honestly, like the mopeds, um, the motorcycles, the cars, very, very expensive. I mean, alone, people are paying $6,000 US for a vehicle to drive on the island. So I actually started driving a motorcycle because that was a much cheaper option. Um, but was you have that to. Your you first have, time driving a bike? A motorcycle? Yeah. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah. I was going to get a okay. scooter um, because I was living up on the mountain um, called Montu in Grenada. And the bus only came from campus like twice a day. And 
I mean, if you missed it, like super inconvenient in the morning, it came more frequently, but in the evening it's not so much. Um, so yeah, I just decided to get my own transportation and I told my roommate I was going to get a scooter and he's like, no, don't be lame. Get a motorcycle. I was like, I don't know how to drive one of those. He's like, we'll figure it out. So I bought like a 100 CC bike and he taught me on a gravel parking lot because that's all right. they have there. And I just drove around, stalled, stalled all over town and eventually figured it out. But did you yeah. need the license? Yes. Well, so I was bad. I didn't get mine initially when I first got there. <laughs> um, it's kind of expensive. And then like also okay. another thing is like, you do have to realize like island time really is a thing. Mm -hmm. um people don't the locals don't tend to feel as rushed you know and like we're in medical school so like our time like we've you know tallied up every minute of our day right. exactly right. so you really have to be patient with the people like they're just doing their job and like they're not stressed out like you and i know students tend to take their frustrations on the locals and that's not okay so you you do so have to people. like right so you do have to be you know um very patient um I forgot where I was going with that. What were we talking about? That's okay. We were we were talking about uh, you getting a bike and you getting a license. And, oh, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. So I so when you go to the DMV there, that's what I was going to say. It would take insanely long, and it was like a half of your day ordeal. So I will say a lot of us wouldn't get licenses, and then um, the police would actually stake out right in front of campus and would check everyone entering campus on the way to class if you had a driver's license or not and would give you a fine if you did not have a driver's license so and that's one of the things i think all of the listeners who are listening and should be aware of is when you go to a foreign country to study you need to follow their rules you need to follow mm -hmm. their culture and you need to have an understanding of their culture and their rules even in my experience it's very similar claire when we I went to Nevis, it was island time. If you ordered a burger, we didn't have any fast food restaurants first off because it was a tiny island. But even when you went to get a burger, it would take 45 minutes. You get to you order a pizza, it would take an hour and a half before you know it, it would be ready for you. And you you can get mad about it, but if you got mad about it, it would just make the wait even longer. And right. it, doesn't, it doesn't help you in any way. And I think it helps a lot if you have, like you mentioned, like if you have friends who are locals, you immerse yourself in the culture, you make yourself part of the community as much as the, your education will allow you to do. Because obviously there are educational constraints in terms of working, in terms of, uh, you know, the studying and the tests and just the overall pressure of medical school, which never really grows away. It's like a dark cloud that hangs over your head, right? Right. And that, and, and that never really, really ends. How did, so you've finished your time on the island, right? You've uh, studied for step one and you passed step one. Quickly, can you tell the listeners what you used to study for step one? So I was leaving the island and I was, had heard about a program called, it's like IOMB. It's like the Kansas City Review. I had heard of like a few of my classmates that had used it. Um, some people really liked it. Some people hated it, but it was like a private, um, like step studying. Like they held it in Kansas city, uh, okay. twice in the summer and you signed up for it. There was only so many spots and like, it was like at a hotel and like you stayed at the hotel and you had class every morning. Um, and like, um, and it's conference rooms in the hotel and things like that. So I did that. Um, and it was helpful in the sense that 
I was given some structure because I had, like I had mentioned before, like when I studied for my MCAT, I didn't have any structure. I was just doing questions all day, every day, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's why my score just plateaued and got stuck. You know, I didn't have the funding or the help, you know, to, you know, push my score further with like other resources. Um, so I decided to do this Kansas city review and it, and it was helpful in the sense of testing strategy and also providing, um, support and accountability. Cause they were like, okay, by, you know, every day you have to have this many questions done. And then they would have you meet with one of their like advisors, like teachers that was also an MD, um, that was currently studying for their step three. And they would meet with you and go over like your testing and like your scores. And we had to take an MBME every week and we took it together. Um, so we'd all like every week. Yeah. It was a six week study program. And so, um, or like every two weeks, but we took several, I mean, I feel like I was always taking an MBME. Um, so we did that and it's nice too, because a lot of people go home from medical school and you get so caught up in being back in the United States, you know, um, you can kind of like get a little bit distracted from maybe studying for your step. So you're back to um, what we'd call, uh, in, if you've been living in the United States your entire life or in North America, you're back to normalcy as such. Right? Exactly. All, all your friends all the are there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like the bars and, are open. Yours, I mean, you're just like, Oh my gosh, it's, yeah. you know, and I sort of struggled with that too. When I came back, uh, after, you know, finished, like when I was studying for step one, um, all my friends were home. And it was so hard to say no to them. They're like, hey, why don't you step out? We'll just go out for a couple of hours. And when you're studying for step one or for any of the steps, you feel guilty doing anything apart from studying, right? The only other mm-hmm. uh, respite you have is maybe sleeping <laughs> or, or, exactly. or, or, or when you're eating. And even when I was eating, I'd, be guil- I'd feel so guilty. I'd be like, oh my God, I'm eating, but, but I should be doing questions right now. Exactly. I mean, exactly. That's how, I mean, everyone feels that way. So I actually had friends who stayed on the Island. Um, they just stayed and had paying rent too. Right. And just because they didn't want to be distracted by being, you know, because you are, you are excited to be home. Your friends are there. Your family is there. Like your old hobbies, routines, things are there. And you you haven't been home in like two years. So everyone's so excited. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, um, especially when you're like, and I will say one of the benefits of going to a Caribbean school is like you are away from home. So like this sounds bad, but like your family doesn't expect things from you. Like mm-hmm. they're gonna like mm-hmm. my siblings are the ones that get called and pulled and like things like that. So people kind of like do leave you alone for the most part because you're out of sight, out of mind. But then again, that also just goes back to feeling lonely and isolated. Right. So you're not having you're not getting that guilt, you know, of needing to do something else, but like you're just like, well, I'm I'm very lonely. So yeah, I decided to do my studies in Kansas City for that reason. Like I needed a structured program. You know, everyone tells you like how important step is, especially for an IMG. That's what sets us apart. Right. Um, that's going to be different now, I guess, that things are past fail. Right. But, you know, you, you have a lot of pressure on your step score. So yeah. I stayed in Kansas City and again, which was like lonely because I was there. And luckily I had two of my friends from medical school with me there. So it wasn't too bad. I was able to study with them and we kept a really good support system going, but I did get pyelonephritis, um, like 11 days before my step exam. And, um, yeah, I was in the hospital for like over a week and got out and two days later had to take my step one. So, um, did the doctors pimp you on what you, what meds you were on? 
No, they didn't pit me on like we were all, but like some of my friends or my two friends that um, were with me in Kansas City actually came with me to the hospital because oh, I didn't even so go sweet. in until I had 104 fever. Oof. Yeah, um, I wasn't able to drive. So like I had been feeling sick for days. And then the day that I went to the hospital, like my joints were hurting. Um, I mean, I was running a fever and I was sitting in my um, my step uh, studying course and the teacher was like wadding up paper and like throwing it at me. And he was like, why are you falling asleep? Like get more sleep, you know, so you can be rested. Like you pay a lot of money for this program. Like wake up, you know? And I was like, I just like, don't feel well. And I was like sweating and I took a Tylenol and I just thought like, you know, I, you know, I had other issues like going on. So I was like, it's probably related to this, like whatever. And no, I, I had a UTI that I didn't have like the most, I didn't have the same symptoms that a lot Mm -hmm. of people present with, with UTI. So I didn't know I had one. And it got oh. so bad and I just had so much pressure because my step was coming up. Like, you don't want to just go to the hospital. Like, you know, so I unfortunately waited till things got like pretty bad and I was really sick. Um, but the doctor was pimping me like, cause I had to do a culture and things like that. And they're like, what, you know, what bacteria do you think it's going to be? And I was like, well, you know, most common is like, you know, Saprophyticus or like E. coli in women and it's probably E. coli and, you know, it's so, like stuff like that. Um, you know, so but, even on your yeah. hospital bed, you're still quote unquote studying a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and actually, yeah. Well, you, you did and, uh, really well. I mean, on your step one, you ended up getting a 222 after being sick for what, over a week? That's amazing. That's actually you. really, really good. So, yeah. I mean, I was proud of fine. myself, but for wanting to Should go be. into the field that I wanted to go into, you know, like even then, my dean was like, your score is low. So um, that's also one thing I would say about the Caribbean medical schools is they try to be realistic with you um, Mm -hmm. to a point so you don't set yourself up for failure, but it can also be very discouraging um, because there are people with my scores and with my background that get into, you know, the same field that I want to go into. But at the same time, they have to be realistic because they want their, their students to match because it makes their match rate look better. So a lot of times they would prefer us to go into you know, some of the like primary specialties and things like that, just simply, you know, because those have a higher match rate and that makes them look better. And, you know, of course you don't want anybody to go unmatched. So they are realistic, um, but it can be, it can be pretty disheartening sometimes. Okay. So you, you finished step one. Now you're ready for clinical rotations. Where did you do all your clinical rotations? So I was in Miami and I thought I was only going to be there you know, for a year. So SGU, how they have you do it, you rank the top three places that you want to do your clinical rotations. So they have a list of hospitals that they're affiliated with. And you rank three out of that list and you write a little blurb of why those are your top choices. Like whether you're, and if you have friends, like they actually have a line where you can list your classmates that also want to go there because they try, they say they try to keep you with like your cohort, your friends, things like that. That's so surprising. Um, right. Um, but what I found out was if you're not from those areas, so like all my friends that were from New York, New Jersey, they all got mm. placed in clinical rotation sites in New York, New Jersey. Um, so I kind of thought I would be too, um, but I'm from Arkansas. So they actually ended up placing me in Miami um, because like there are no clinical rotation sites really centrally yeah, located. Mm. Yeah. And so I actually got placed in Miami away from a lot of my friends. So at first it was also, again, kind of isolating, but then I ended up making friends in my clinicals who, 
you know, well, you're also at, help me get through it. You're also at home then, right? So that makes it a little easier. And right. you, you keep bringing up the fact that you need support, you need friends around you. And I think for anyone who's listening to this podcast today should realize that it's very, very important to, to have a, a circle of friends that you can rely on. When I was in the island, we used to, you know, I had a circle of friends and we used to call each other the ride or die crew because they were essentially the only people that you could rely on if anything went wrong. And then that ride or die crew continued throughout clerkships or rotations and all through graduation and up until this day, we're such great friends and we're always in touch. We're always finding out, Hey, did you match? If you match, we celebrate. If you didn't, they try and help you. So it's important in med school to have that support system because you'll need that support system and you need to learn the skills to build a support system also for residency from, from everything that, you know, we see now. Mm -hmm. So now you you're doing your clinical rotations. How was that experience in Florida? So I loved it. Um, how was I, there like, here? like when you first went to the hospital, how was that? Was it like, Oh my God, what am I doing? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy, right? Cause you just study all the time and you're like, right. you kind of lose focus of what you're actually doing. All that matters is test scores and numbers. And when you get to the hospital, you're like, oh yeah, this is why I went to medical school. And it, it re, it kind of re your flame and your passion for medicine. Cause you lose that a little bit first two years of like your didactic studies, I feel like. Mm. Um, but also a really cool thing in, in, uh, SGU our last semester on the island, they actually let us start rotating in the hospital there. Oh, cool. And, you know, Grenada has different resources than they do in the United States. So it was really cool, actually, to get to see the different um, the modalities of medicine, the different way of working around cases when you like maybe don't have the resource, um, you know. And so, yeah, when we went to the hospitals I, in the U.S., I was like, wow, these are it's really nice. It's so fancy. Like, you know, um, but yeah, so it was a lot of fun. Let's talk, a, like very briefly, talk about the contrast between your clinical experience in Grenada versus your clinical experience in the United States. What was different? Because, you know, a lot of IMGs hear a lot about, oh, you need to have clinical U.S. clinical experience. You need to have U.S. clinical experience. So, um, so just to give them an insight into why U.S. clinical experience is so important, can you explain what the difference is between Grenada and, and the United States and why U.S. clinical experience is so important? So I think what they really want you to learn, because, you know, there's a lot of physicians that come from all over the world and have practiced great medicine, are great, great physicians, you know, but one of the things I've noticed from going to one country to another there are different cultures, there are different resources. And like that, even it even changes as much as like the questions you ask for like your HPI, like for instance, in Grenada, one of the questions you always have to ask a patient is what kind of water do they drink? Is it tap or is it from a water bottle and do they boil it? Like those are very important things. And that's not a question I'm necessarily going to think to ask in the United States and not saying that's the sole reason why they look for that, but it's Unless like, it's same as like, I'm, I don't know anything about Detroit water if it grows. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Flint, oh. Flint, Detroit is pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. That, that You bring up such a great point. I mean, the it's different, right? I mean, every patient population is different. And you need to realize what each patient population brings and what the environment they're in. What other differences did you notice? 
Um, mostly, and I also think it comes down to networking. Um, what I've realized and what has made especially the difference in my application for residency last year and this year has been networking. And that was even something that was important when I was applying to medical school the first time, and I didn't realize the significance of it. Um, so when you do U.S. clinical rotations, you are able to network more. You're able to get letters of recommendations from physicians in your area. And then when you apply to, you know, hospitals and programs in that area, they look at that, you know, LOI and they're like, oh, I know so-and-so from this department. Like, you know, medicine is a small field. So when you have that U.S. clinical experience, I really just feel like it's a way for them to like, you know, gauge who taught you, where you got your training from. It's just a way to network and to get more information on the applicant. I don't think it necessarily just comes down to like quality of skills. Like, you know, do we have to be sure that they have that skill set? Like those things are important, but you know, a lot of doctors are going to be, you know, well qualified, but it really just comes down. It's like, who can vouch for you? And if you get U.S. clinical experience, it's kind of just like, it's just like a ticket being like, hey, someone that you may know vouched for me. And I feel like that's kind of where it, 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 where the, the difference lies is just mostly in the networking aspect of it. Right. And that's why one of the great things Project IMG does is it allows you to schedule U.S. clinical experiences throughout the United States. And like Claire just mentioned, it helps with the networking. And for all of the listeners, it's very important to realize that when, like Claire mentioned, when you're working with other doctors who are faculty, who are working on a day-to-day basis in the U.S. hospital, they're also looking to see not only what your skills are, but more importantly, can they work with you for the next three years? Can they work with you for the next four or five years for residency? That's so important. And that's why it's so important to have interpersonal skills, to refine your interpersonal skills, to network and, and have people vouch for you, like you said, Clara. That is that is so important, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also another big thing is like there are certain protocols that are in place in the U.S. that maybe aren't in other countries, you know, like... There was something recently that went viral on Twitter where an anesthesiologist posted a video of him in the OR and he filmed the patient and the patient's chart. And it was over some stupid game, Xbox versus PS5 or whatever. It doesn't even matter. But the thing is, it's that physician is still practicing. He is still posting on Twitter and it's because he's not in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean that his skills aren't good as an anesthesiologist. He's probably a great anesthesiologist outside the fact he completely disregarded those patients. Right. That does not make him good, but you know, like, so it's things like that. Like, I think they also just want to make sure like, Hey, like, were you taught the same ethics? Were you taught the same, you know, patient, um, you know, patient privilege rights, because they do vary from country to country. So it's not necessarily like, Hey, how good are your sutures? And I want to make sure that you actually, know what gene that mutation was on it's not about that it's just do are you you know are you comfortable with the way that the healthcare system works in the united states right and you know i think that particular example you give is a great example of if it was the united states violating hipaa which Mm -hmm. is probably different in in different countries but in the united states if you were to do that you'd be violating hipaa so i'm so exactly that's so important so you did your core rotations in Florida. Did you have to schedule your own electives or did the school schedule yes. for you? So no, was, you had to schedule your own, which is um, how did, how did you go about for most that? schools. So we, so St. George's, a lot of people used a website. 
I can't even remember what it's called because I couldn't use it. Um, but St. George's isn't registered on it. So a lot of the MDs and DOs in the U.S. use this clinical site. We were not able to. So I use Clinician Nexus. Clinician um, and, Nexus. Mm-hmm, and it's okay. Nexus with two X's. Okay. And you send out applications. I would apply like two months before whatever um, rotation it is that you want to go to. But you do have to apply. You have to do a whole onboarding process. Is there a fee um, so for it? Very, it's very tedious. Um, I don't remember there being a fee, but you have to like go get your drug tests done. You have to go get your vaccinations done. So paying for those things, like any onboarding that you have to do, but you have to do it like repeatedly for each hospital. Like, so if you save your paperwork, you're good to go. So if you, you have to do a drug test for every rotation, you have to do your vaccination for every rotation, or you just need your paperwork for every, for every rotation. So your, va- your vaccinations and stuff, if you just got your flu shot, just got mm-hmm. like your TB, like you can show it, but it has to be within a certain date. And they'll put on there like for this rotation, you need, you know, these shots that are good between these dates. So you can like reuse your shot records. Um, but like the drug test has to be within so many weeks of you applying. So if like you mm-hmm. took one six months ago, you might like, you know, if, it, if you're applying pretty closely, um, you know, like maybe two rotations, you can use that same drug test, but you, you do end up getting drug okay. tested several times. If you're switching hospitals, like every time you switch a hospital, you're going to have to do a whole nother onboarding process. And they're going to ask for a drug test as well with, you know, and it has to be within a certain date. Okay. Sure. And you scheduled your own electives. What did you end up, what did you want to end up doing? So I started medical school with the intention of doing emergency medicine. And did that change um, throughout medical school or are you still gung-ho on, on emergency medicine? So I, I wanted EM the entire time. I will say there was about six weeks during my trauma surgery rotation in Miami where I was like, okay, I want to do trauma surgery. But, you know, I, I didn't have, the, I didn't have the, the step scores for it. And right. also one thing I will say with being an IMG is like, I'd be lying if I said that you weren't treated differently in the hospital. You are, even as a student. I think as an attending, people try like people start dismissing that and they don't care as much. But as a student, I really felt like I, you know, wasn't maybe taken as seriously. Um, you know, one of the hospitals I rotated through accepted like accepted SG students for rotations, but had never taken one for residency. Well, if that's where you're doing your rotations, then that's who's writing your LOIs. And then, you know, we talked about networking and how important that is. Well, that doesn't help you any because like, you know, you, you want to be able to get letters from places that you're going to be applying to for residency. So what kind of stinks is like your first, like your third year SGU assigns where you do your clinicals and you do all your basic clinicals through one site. So like your OBGYN, your family medicine, pediatrics internal medicine, surgery, that's all at one clinical site. And, you know, if you want to go into peds or I am like you, you really want a letter from your core rotation. And then you also want a letter from, you know, a sub I or something that you did in the field that you wanted to go into. But what ends up happening is you're at a rotation site where people really don't like take you seriously. You know, if you're paired with another student, like we were paired with UM students, UM students got a little bit more privilege than us. Also, I noticed like the docs would like coerce with the UM students more. And, you know, I'm not saying that they weren't nice and things like that, but when it came 
come down to like needing a letter, um, like you would just get no responses, not a lot of support, couldn't really find mentors. So you kind of end up rotating in a hospital that's not supporting you as an IMG or giving you any type of help to, you know, get on your feet. And so, right. So what I recommend for a lot of people, when you do your fourth year and you're picking out your rotations, if you are an international medical grad, like you want good letters and you want people who are willing to invest in you and write a good letter because it really makes or breaks your application. Right. So you want to do research, like what clinical sites can I go to that have taken IMGs um, and things like that? Because those are the people who are going to write your letters. And if they write you a good letter, they're mo- most likely will interview you, you right. know, for a spot when residency comes around. And that's ultimately what you want, right? The whole point of clinical rotations isn't to just learn, but it's to shake hands and network and meet people and try to get a job. So it is kind of hard if you get put in a hospital where, you know, they don't, like they don't have IMGs in their graduate programs, you know, like you're kind of, that's a whole year wasted where you could have been meeting people and getting great letters and things like that. So that was kind of an unfortunate part of all of that. So so the takeaway from everything you've said today, uh, from what you've said right now is when you're scheduling your fourth year elective rotations as an IMG, try and pick places where there are already IMGs present, where IMGs are valued, where there are mm-hmm. IMG residents versus places where you don't see any IMG residents. And sometimes you might be attracted to a hospital or a location, which is uh, really nice, like Florida, it's sunny, it's bright, everything's wonderful. Or you get a rotation at John Hopkins or some really high Ivy League elite school. However, if they're not going to take IMGs, is it really helping you? Right. right. Exactly. Cause it's your time. Right. Like I said, to like network and really get a strong letter of recommendation. Right. And, and so you, you don't want to waste that. And it's so unfortunate that there is that stigma with IMGs versus American grads, even though you're rotating at the same hospital, you're seeing the same patients. You're we took the same USMLEs. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's, it's, it's so unfortunate. And hopefully a project IMG will be one of those uh, organizations that will help and take care of that, like, like get rid of that stigma. And I think with all of the opportunities that Project IMG offers by their observerships, by the U.S. clinical experiences, and by all the different means of resources available to people who access Project IMG, hopefully that stigma will slowly, slowly dissipate. And you've, you finished your clinical rotations, you took your step two, Right. Mm-hmm. And on your step two, you got a 232, which is such a marked improvement from your step one. And hopefully this time you weren't sick before. No. <laughs> which, which is great. Did you take a prep course for step two as well? I didn't. Um, I didn't have the money. Um, and I kind of just took what I liked about the program that I did for my step one, like how like right. you approached questions, like how the critical process went. Like I liked that and I kept that, but I mean, you're in clinicals and you're stressed out and you're like, you know, I mean, it's just really hard to get any type of like organized system. At least it was for me. So I just worked on UWorld um, and did like AMBOSS and then just like really tried to stay like on top of my shelves and things like that. Okay. And like what one of the things with the USMLE is it's as much as it is a knowledge 
and comprehension exam. It's also very much a test-taking test exam. Mm -hmm. So you need to learn the test-taking strategies. So for all of the IMGs listening today, do you have any advice on test-taking strategies? So one of the best things that I did for myself before taking any type of like um, block that analyzed my score, like any type of practice exam or anything, is do a practice a timed practice block first because my hardest part was turning my brain on to like timer mode when I would start practice exams. And I always ran out of time on my first block would always run out of time. I would have a hard time like getting my thoughts together quickly. But then by my second block, I was like warmed up. So I was like, you know, someone had told me like, why is your first block on your actual test, your warm up? you know, you should be doing a block before that. And I was like, Oh right. yeah, duh. Like, right. so I actually started doing that. Um, and that also like calmed my nerves. It gets mm -hmm. you into the, into the, the mode. And like a lot of times I did really good on it because I didn't have the stress of like, okay, this is a actual exam. So I would do good on that block. And I'm like, Oh hell yeah. So I'd be going into my practice exam feeling pretty good, right. you know? So it just, it was more helpful. Um, right. so I think that's really important is always practice how you're going to take the test. So what I did for step two is anytime I did a block, it was always timed. I never did an untimed block. So that was a little bit different for step one. I would just like leisurely click through, click through questions mm -hmm. and then occasionally like do timed blocks. For step two, I only did questions and blocks. What resources um, do you use for step two? I just used the um, UWorld and mm -hmm. then I did a little bit of AMBOSS, but um, not so much of it. And you so found Mostly UWorld. UWorld was sufficient enough. Did you use any textbooks? Um, the first aid. First aid you used? Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. And uh, you ended up doing really well on step two. You, obviously your testating strategy worked. You passed the OET on the first time. You didn't have to do step two CS because we were beyond that point. You were, you right. were a COVID grad. So you had to do uh, OET. And you pass that on the first time. Any tips for the IMGs who will be taking the OET? Um, I do have some tips. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention real quick before we moved on. Sure. Um, I do want to put out there, you know, when I first moved to Miami, like I didn't have money. I didn't have transportation, things like that. I was living in a basement off my Miami beach. Um, you know, I was taking like Ubers and things like that to work. I mean, it was a very like stressful time. So my very first shelf actually was surgery. And so for it's anybody that doesn't know what a shelf, yeah, it's an NBME exam. And essentially all your shelves are kind of what make up the step two. So I had surgery and, you know, surgery alone is a very hard rotation mm -hmm. and I was in trauma surgery. So there was like no downtime, especially because I'm in trauma surgery in Miami. Like you're, you're, there's not a whole lot of time that you're just sitting around. Um, so I didn't even know how to study for a shelf. Like MBMEs, you know, are difficult exams. They almost feel like they're tricking you the entire time. Um, so I actually failed my surgery shelf. And then I, my next block was IM, which is also the, the other hard shelf. And, um, you know, IM and surgery are both 12-week blocks. Like a lot of rotations are like six weeks, but um, surgery and IM are like the longest blocks. And I was in IM and I just, you know, I'm still dealing with the same struggles of, you know, I'm in Florida. My family's in Arkansas. 
I wasn't able to work on the side. I only had a minimum amount of student loans. I still didn't have transportation. I didn't have friends yet. I was slowly starting to make friends in clinicals, but they were living in you know, more expensive apartments in downtown Miami. And I was living in North Miami Beach because it was cheaper. So even the few friends I did make, um, you know, you don't get to see them all the time. So, you know, I did like, you know, struggle with, you know, loneliness and, and, you know, the other aspects that come with medical school, but, you know, so my IM shelf comes around and I failed that one too. So our school has a rule, like you can retake the shelves, but you can't, um, fail them twice. You can only fail them once. That's a lot and of you, you have to pass all of your shelves to even graduate. Right. And, you know, and I just remember, you know, going to study for my step two and I'm like, and everyone's like the biggest part of your step USMLA step two is I am in surgery. And I'm like, cool. Those are the shelves that I failed. Right. Um, so, you know, actually when I went down to study for step two, like I was like, I'm not going to do good on this because these are the, you know, it's heavily weighted on the parts that I didn't do very well. And so I actually like drilled myself on mostly surgery and IM questions. Like I knew that's where I was lacking. And so that's really where I concentrated on. And I actually had to retake those shelves and I ended up honoring both of them over a year after I took the initial, um, rotation. So even though I hadn't been in surgery for a year, cause I, I took them, you know, um, I actually didn't even take my shelf till after I took my step two. So I took my step two, which my school doesn't like us doing, but there's a lot of us. So I kind of flew under the radar. Otherwise I don't think that they would have, you know, liked me to take my step two and apply, but I wanted to apply for residency. And I was like, these shelf scores, like don't matter. It only, I mean, it, it's the difference for SGU. If you make an A on your shelf, it allows you to honor the rotation. Okay. So if you get an A in like the clinical work, you know, you have to get an A on the NBME exam, the shelf at the end. And then that's how you get an A plus, which is considered honors. Um, so it only gave me a B in my surgery and my IM rotation, which is annoying, but it didn't fail me. So I could theoretically apply to residency. Um, right. So I went ahead and applied and did all of that. So I actually didn't take my surgery and IM shelf till a year after those rotations and months. It was like, six months, seven months after I actually took step two. So I had to go back and study for those things, right. you know? And I was like, I really hope I pass this because if I don't pass this, I'm supposed to graduate in two months and they're not going to graduate me. And I've already mm-hmm. applied to residency. And I actually ended up honoring both of those shelves. So like, you know, I just took my weaknesses and I actually made them like the strongest thing about, you know, my testing strategy. And it really paid off in the long run. So, but it wasn't, I was just trying to point out that like even the process of me getting to taking the step two was difficult because I wasn't passing my shelves because I had a lot of personal stuff going on in my life at the time and was living in an area where I still had no friends, still had no family, you know, and wasn't able to like hold a job because I'm in clinicals and studying all the time. So it was a very stressful time. And um, I think, you know, when you go into medical school, it's, it's everything else. It's not just making the grades. It's literally surviving the process, which can be right. very difficult. Well, I think we need to commend your resilience and, and your mental strength of, of getting through that tough situation and finding a way to ensure that you ended up uh, achieving all of your goals for, for finishing step two and you know flying through all the hoops that were required. That's absolutely amazing. I think you should be Thank giving you. yourself a little bit of credit for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm it's pretty important. proud of myself. 
you should be too. And I think that's one of the important things that the listeners need to realize too, is that when, you know, you're faced with adversity, um, you have to push through it sometimes. And that happens a lot, especially when you're an IMG, because you don't have to deal with, as another grad, you don't have to deal with the high shelf scores. You can just pass it with a lower shelf score. Right. I think even Mm -hmm. when I was, when I was a student at MUA, our shelf scores, you needed the 75 plus to pass. And 75 on a shelf is not easy. It's it's right. It takes a lot of work to get 75 on a shelf. So so kudos to you for for, for achieving that. Even you know when you had no support, uh, you were financially strained. You were still in rotations, and to still do that, that's absolutely amazing. And thank you. So you finished step two. You mm-hmm. applied for residency, and uh, as we know, you didn't get in uh, on mm-hmm. your first year, which was last year. What did you do to improve your application? And in your first year, how many interviews did you have? So in my first year, I applied to emergency medicine and I only had four interviews. Um, Two of them came like very early in the cycle. And then the other two I got because they were newer programs and they opened in January and I was blowing up the program director's email, like, hey, give me an interview. And and they did. Um, So I ended up with four, but unfortunately I didn't match. Um, so I had done an audition rotation in the emergency department at one of the ERs in Miami. And this was a program that had previously taken SGU students at least to a year in their ER program. And I really felt like I got along with the residents. I really tried hard to like bust my ass, make a good impression. I loved the environment, you know, and I felt like I was a shoe in, you know, not necessarily like a shoe in, but I felt confident about it. You know, I knew I loved the place and, you know, the residents were asking me to hang out after hours. Like I went snorkeling and diving with some of them. Um, you know, so I, right. uh Uh-huh. And I I genuinely just got along with it. Well, so I, you know, I, I will say, so when I went through the application process the first time, um, I, you know, unfortunately was dating somebody new not so new. We'd been dating for like three or four months and he was like really serious about me. And like, he didn't want to leave Florida and I'm someone who really likes the warmer climate. So I didn't really want to leave Florida. And I was very naive about this process. Like I kind of just felt like, you know, my, I rocked my audition rotation. Like this was it. It was going to be okay. Everyone's like, you just need one to match. And I was like, this is my one to match. It's where I want to go. I want to be here. It's perfect. And so when I went through the process of applying, like I was just kind of blindly applying to places that I wanted to go to based off of like location and, Mm -hmm. you know, where I liked and I was really getting input from my significant other. And also during this time, you know, COVID is happening and Mm -hmm. I, you know, went to have my transcript uploaded and I realized my entire third year is missing for my transcript. And it was just unfortunately one of those things when you graduate from a class of like 900 students and the secretaries are out because of COVID, paperwork gets missed and things happen. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. it happened to me. And so so I didn't. Oh, it's okay. I mean, honestly, if I had filled out my application sooner, I would have caught it sooner. (laughs) I could have had it fixed. But I had such severe anxiety about the application process. I put it off until literally the day before. I've been working on my personal statement and my CV, of course, but I hadn't actually submitted it and like looked at all my uploaded documents until the day before. And that's when, 
you know, I, I noticed that. And I actually, and you can't look at your transcript from ERAS. So I didn't notice it from that. I had asked for a copy from the registrar because I needed it for something else. And that's when I was like, mm-hmm. is this what's on file? Because this is what I uploaded to ERAS and there's my whole third year missing. So that really was unfortunate. And I know I wasn't the only student to have that happen to. Um, I in addition, the stress when you first saw that or click right? on ERAS, I'm like, oh my God, what just happened? And you probably panicked. Well, but the thing is, it's like, you kind of are just thinking that everybody looks like that because right. everyone had a hard year with COVID. So you're right. like, well, maybe they'll be more lenient. Um, no, definitely. There were students that had their shit together because they are the ones that got the jobs. <laughs> um, so I, that happened. And then also I had a letter writer who um, I was really banking on his letter and he you know, his secretary got sick and he kept putting it off. And like, as a student, you really feel bad about harassing some of your preceptors, um, but they are busy people. And so like you, you teeter this, like, am I like reminding you or am I being annoying now? And he actually didn't upload my letter until like two months after the application services went out. Oh, wow. So um, it just was overall like a bad year for me. Like I didn't mm-hmm. do the research, you know, as an IMG, you have to research who is even going to take IMGs? To put it, you know, to put it bluntly, you weren't prepared. I was like not prepared. Should've... I took right. exactly. I took right. the process for granted. Like I kind of just, I, I like, I like, I had this confidence in myself, and then it wasn't until I saw the lack of interviews that I was like, oh no, like, you know. And that's when I would you know, have the interviews, and then in the interviews themselves, I would shut down, freak out, like talk in circles. Um, I just really had poor interviewing skills and I had severe imposter syndrome from only having four interviews when a lot of my peers applying for the same specialty had like seven or eight. Um, So yeah, it it was a very difficult process, but that was the biggest difference between last year and this year is just the amount of preparedness. Like as soon as I found out that I didn't match last year, I mean, I think I had like three days. So the whole week of soap, I mean, you're just you're in gear, sending emails, calling people. You don't really have a lot of time to be emotional. But the week after that begins a scramble. And that kind of continues indefinitely as programs fill spots all year long for whatever reasons. And, you know, so I think I had about like three days where I was like on the couch crying, not eating, like, you know, like really couldn't function. And then I just had to get into gear. You know, I like did the math and I was like, okay, I have five months until my application goes live again. What can I actually get done in five months? It's going to make a significant difference. And so, you know, I really went into the cycle more prepared and how, you know, I did the research on all the applications and like where I was sending or where I was sending my application to like what programs and whatnot. And, you know, I just, um, you know, I rewrote my personal statement. I revamped my CV. I found mentors in my field. And I definitely did not take this process for granted. Um, So I, you know, when I worked to save up the money to apply for the application process the second time around. So yeah, you have that time where you have that panic when you don't match, but then you also have to realize that you have a very small time to make a significant difference on your application before the next cycle begins. And just to put into contrast, the difference preparation makes on your first year, you had four interviews mm-hmm. and how many interviews do you have this year? This year I have 17. Wow. So. That's like 
more than four times the amount of interviews you had last yeah. year. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah, and, I'm, and, I'm really stoked. So, yeah. I, I mean, the, it, it just shows it really makes a difference. It, it, I think preparation makes such a great difference. And just your example right here and for everyone, anyone who's listening, uh, it's so important to be prepared for maps, to have all your documents in order, to double check things a million times, even though it causes you anxiety, it's important to do mm -hmm. and to have all your eggs in your basket. And I think this year you also networked a lot more. Like you said, you had mentors, you reached out to mentors and Project IMG has, uh, it's a place where you can find mentors who know what they're talking about, who will be invested in you. And uh, it, it makes it a lot easier to find mentors because I, I know before Project IMG, I had trouble finding mentors too, because you have to mm -hmm. keep searching and searching and searching. And then eventually you come across someone that believes in you. So I want to say good luck for this year's match. I know it's two days, two days to go, Saturday, yep. Sunday, and then Monday, 8 a.m. Central Standard Time, we find out if, uh, if, if we matched or not. I am so stoked for you. I am pretty sure you will end up matching this year. And I want to wish you the best of luck, Claire. You, uh, you've given us your time today, and I really, really appreciate it. Is there any final words you have for all of the IMGs listening today in the Project IMG podcast that you would like to tell them anything? I do want to say, you know, being a doctor was the only option for me. It's the only job I have ever wanted, you know, and I completely relate and empathize with people who want nothing more than to be a physician. You know, it's, it's more than a career. It can be like your lifestyle, you know, if you have that passion for the sciences and for helping people and things like that. So when you, you know, a lot of us are IMGs for a reason, whether it was, you know, you had a difficult journey that prevented you from going to the school in your country, or maybe you felt like you, or maybe you didn't get the scores that was required to go to school in your country. Like, that doesn't disqualify you from becoming a great physician. And people along the way are going to challenge you emotionally and, you know, going to really cause you to question if you have the abilities to accomplish these things. It is a hard journey. I'm not going to lie and say that it's easy. You know, you are discouraged at every corner from some of your classmates, from your dean you know, to your family who, you know, misses you and hasn't seen you in forever, you know, maybe by your significant other who you've dragged to another country to do this process with you. It is not easy. It's not easy when you ran out of money in the middle of the week and you're trying to figure out someone to wire you something, or you can't call home or anybody else without Wi-Fi service. Like it's going to be the hardest thing you have ever done in your life. But I'm going to say that it's still possible. You can still do it. You can still be a physician. Just you have to realize the amount of sacrifice and passion you have to have for this because it's going to feel like nobody has your back. But actually, there's a lot of IMGs like me, like a STEM who are going through this process that are willing to take the time to help. So reach out to the other IMGs like all around the world. There's, we are a huge group of us. Like, even though we all go to different Caribbean schools, we all go to different international schools. We are bound by the fact that we are IMGs. So lean on your fellow IMGs, you know, um, also being in the Caribbean or being in an international school, you're going to get great experience meeting people from all over the world, from all different countries, 
when you have your small group and someone's like, how does it, you know, what's it like living like this type of person or living with this color skin or, you know, what is it like being this gender? Like you get to hear about everyone's different experiences and it's not always as colorful as maybe it is when you're back in the States and everyone kind of comes from, you know, a lineage of doctors or things like that. Like you really get to see wonderful people who have the same passion as you. So what I'm saying is just like work hard, don't give up and ask for help. Always ask for help. Ask your friends, find a mentor, even talk to your deans, even though they're scary. Just take what they say with a grain of salt. You know, it's kind of like a liability thing, I feel like, you know, but work hard. It's definitely possible, but you have to realize it's never going to be easy. It's not a cakewalk. And there's, like I said, there's going to be obstacles at every corner. So really lean, lean on the people around you and the people in this similar situation and, you know, have faith in yourself because it will happen eventually. And like Dr. Stringfellow said, seek help. And that help is available at Project IMG for all things IMG. Dr. Stringfellow, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out for being here today. I enjoyed our conversation so much. It was so nice to hear the insights of your experiences, your entire journey from America to Grenada to back to America. And now you're sitting here with 17 interviews ready to match in two days. It's with your ups and downs. It's been so exciting. I want to wish you the best of luck, not only uh, for Monday when you find out if you're going to match, but also for the rest of your career. I think you are going to be a stellar physician. You are already a stellar physician and you will have an opportunity in a couple of days to show the entire world how good of a physician you are. So thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. And for all the listeners listening today, check out Project IMG on Instagram. It's at Project IMG. Check them out on Twitter at Project IMG, and check out the website, www.projectimg.org. Project IMG is a free IMG-based organization for all things IMG. I want to thank you all for listening tonight and have yourself a wonderful evening. Be kind to each other and be kind to yourself. Have a good night, everyone.